RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Pro Athlete Supplementation. Check them out at pas-nutrition.co.uk for all your supplementation needs. And don't forget that subscribers to the Rugby Renegade program get a 40% discount on retail prices. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today is a slightly different podcast. Uh, we're going specifically on a topic which today is HRV, heart rate variability. And we got one of the world's leading experts in HRV uh, research. Andrew Flatt, who's assistant professor at Southern Georgia University, and he he talks all about the stuff he's doing, uh, what HRV is, um, how it uh, can affect your training, or how you should use it to adapt your training, uh, and even how uh, rugby players can use it specifically. Obviously, there's loads of research on uh, endurance athletes, but more and more, and Andrew's leading this, there's more and more research into team sports, uh, and he's done a lot of work with football, uh, rugby, and soccer as well. Um, So loads of information, Uh, give it a good listen, and any questions, get back to us, and we can put those to Andrew and hopefully get those answered as well. But give it a listen, and let us know what you think. Hi Andrew, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast, uh, great to have you on. Why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning, uh, some of the, the teams and sports you've worked with, and then uh, move forward on to how you got involved in heart rate variability studies. Uh, sure, well first thanks uh, for having me on today, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I'll, I'll try not to talk too long about my background. Um, in general, uh, I entered the field of strength and conditioning after several years of just being an athlete. Um, you know, I played hockey. I, I grew up up north in, in Canada. I played a lot of years of ice hockey. I actually played about five years of rugby as well, which oh, cool. you probably don't know about me. <laughs> it's not something I, I mention a lot just because not a lot of people play rugby over here in the U.S. and in Canada. But I played from eighth grade up all the way through high school. Started out as a fly half and then uh, played lock as I started to get bigger um, and got more involved in training. Oh, cool. I really, I really took an interest in strength and conditioning, um, at least as as a potential career opportunity when I was playing football, and just observed a lot of things that I thought um, could be done a lot better. Um, and, and just to give you a few examples, when I entered my first year of uh, preseason training camp in 2004 as a college football player, I entered training camp at about 250 pounds, and after about a week and a half, um, I was down to about 225 pounds. So I lost. You know, I don't know how accurate that scale was, but I know I lost a tremendous amount of weight, and uh, it was it was obviously a little bit concerning to me. So I was like, you know, there's got to be a better way where this stuff can be monitored, and 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 someone should be in charge of something like this. And then just other incidences of seeing uh, teammates getting injured in certain workouts, where I was just like, you know, there's got to be a better way with this kind of stuff. So after football, I got into powerlifting and uh, overreached myself before a competition where I was actually in planning on, on performing really well and, and beating some personal records and uh, and ended up pulling out of the meet because uh, I failed to, um, or, or essentially I, I ended up getting sick and, and not being able to train and, and the weight started feeling really heavy. And that just inspired me to really start looking into what are what are the available tools of, of monitoring, you know, how you're adapting and responding to training because because my numbers, my weight, the weights I was lifting were, were improving dramatically 
Um, and but I just kept increasing volume and intensity, and 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 I just hit the wall. And I and I didn't have the background in physiology to really understand the overtraining and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that's what really brought me to the field. In terms of teams I've worked with, I worked at a private high school um, for several years as a strength and conditioning coach and a, and a football coach. Uh, during my master's, I was a graduate assistant strength and conditioning coach, working with uh, teams like football, women's soccer, baseball, uh, volleyball, tennis, et cetera, uh, as well as men's basketball. Um, and then when I started to uh, consider this idea of pursuing a PhD, um, I, I started to work with uh, some other teams more in a with with the objective of collecting data and from a research perspective, but was still involved in the strength and conditioning and the day-to-day activities. Um, completed my PhD at University of Alabama. Had the pleasure of working with uh, some teams there, including um, the the sprint swimmers, the soccer team, and the football team. Um, and yeah, that, that that brings me to my current position, which I'm an assistant professor uh, at Georgia Southern University, currently living in Savannah, Georgia. And this is really the first year that I haven't been involved with the, directly with a team. Um, I'm continuing my research, and now I, I'm fortunate enough to have graduate students to get them on some projects. But in terms of, of hands-on being directly involved with the team, this is really the first year since my undergrad that, that I'm not directly involved with the team. And I'm hoping that's going to change shortly once I get my feet settled here and I can start working with the teams here. Yeah, cool. So, um, so you moved into more research. Is, is that around HRV? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the only reason why I even considered graduate school in both a master's and a PhD um, was simply because I was very interested in heart rate variability because I had been using it on myself for, for several years um, back when I was powerlifting. I started, and, and when I was training young athletes, uh, I was using it with them and I was observing these trends and I was seeing, you know, when they were responding well to training, I was noticing trends, but also when, when I would get sick or athletes would get sick or, or I would see these trends and, and, and I knew it was meaningful. I just really didn't know. I didn't really have the strong physiological background to really explain what was happening. Um, and so that was really the motivation for, for pursuing the masters and eventually the PhD, because there was a lot of questions I had that weren't answered in the current available research. I mean, there was a lot of really novel and cool research available, but but a lot of the practical stuff of, you know, how can we use this regularly on a day-to-day basis? It was just one of those things where I was like, you know, if if, if it's not getting done, then then maybe that's something that I should pursue. And, and there's been several other research groups that have been doing a great job with it as well. So I think I think in the last, you know, five years or so, we've really learned a lot about HRV and how it can be applied in the in the practical sports setting. Yeah, and and certainly there's been a lot of older HRV research in in more endurance sports, and and you've certainly sort of pushed into team sports and and strength sports and how how you can benefit from that. And and you've touched on like a few few words, you know, overreaching and and stimulus stimulus and adaptation and things like that. And let's let's now sort of look at the bare bones of what HRV is and and how it can affect some of those things. Um. In terms, so HRV as a, a tool of reflecting adaptation, I, yeah. I think that that's probably what it's best used for. Um, so I think I think the best way that one can use heart rate variability is first you're going to want to educate yourself on just some of the available research that shows how one will typically how HRV will typically respond to training. Um, because once you understand what the typical response is, then you could kind of compare 
what you're observing either in yourself or your athletes are are you responding as you would be expected to respond or is it different you might be responding better than expected or you could be responding worse um but but having that background and understanding of of maybe what the typical or expected response would be i think i think is really important and so just to give you a few examples um i've observed in numerous athletes that whenever you introduce i don't want to say a novel stimulus but maybe let's say an increase in training load okay the expected response or the typical response that that we observe and and others have definitely observed this as well is you start to see reductions in hrv from your baseline uh, which could be characterized as as either a lot of fluctuation where the scores drop really low and then they bounce up high the next day and they're showing a lot of fluctuation okay Um, or Alternatively, and I would say a more severe negative response to the increase in training load would be where HRV scores drop well below baseline and they don't bounce back up at all and they stay chronically suppressed. So with those two responses, we could kind of say, okay, we have this more, uh, I would say, more moderate level of fatigue um, with with the increase in daily fluctuation or we have this more severe level of fatigue where HRV drops and remains chronically suppressed. So with that background, when I'm working with athletes or, or when I'm putting myself through some intensified training, that's what I'm looking for. I'm seeing, okay, how is HRV responding? Is it fluctuating up and down where I would be considered maybe, you know, moderately stimulated or, or is my score is just crashing? Um, and, and is this probably too much that I could handle? Um, and, and whether it's football players, swimmers, soccer players, these are the typical trends that we're, we're seeing. And then adaptation to that stimulus is, after that first week or two of intensified training, we should start to see HRV come back to normal and stabilize where it's, it's not jumping around so much. Uh, it may increase a little bit above baseline. And that's telling us that, you know, we've increased training load and, and, it, and as it's persisting, we're adapting well, we're handling it. It's not causing these crazy fluctuations in, in the function of our autonomic nervous system. We're adapting well, we're handling it, we're recovering faster. So when we enter a training camp or, or, or the first couple of weeks of off-season training, I'm expecting to see some reductions in HRV. Um, I, what I don't want to see is that they crash and they stay chronically low. That, that's usually the worst-case scenario, especially in team sport athletes and, and anaerobic-type athletes. But, but I do want to see after a week or two those, stores, those scores start to improve and stabilize. Otherwise, we're going to have to look into why is the athlete not responding well because the correct intervention is going to be dependent upon the factors that are contributing contributing to the poor adaptation that could be simply that training is just too much they weren't their work capacity wasn't high enough and and training loads need to be reduced but it could also be a sleep issue it could be a lifestyle issue um and and, and so I, I guess i should should mention that you know heart rate variability itself isn't telling you what the problem is it, it's just telling you that there's probably a problem and you're going to have to investigate looking at training load and wellness and even of course, just having a conversation with the athlete to really determine what is the correct approach for for getting them back on track and and having them adapt better to training. Yeah, so I guess I guess it's kind of a it's a, a signal of of overall stress on on the body as an organism, isn't it? And and then, like I said, you've got to research and and try and ascertain what it is. Um, what what you and you mentioned different sports and and you know. There's some similarities in how people respond, but what does the different research say about endurance sports or team sports or strength sports? Okay. Yeah, I, I think, you know, working with team sports and, and with anaerobic athletes, I actually think HRV is a little bit easier to implement and to interpret the responses. And that's because um, 
endurance athletes, fatigue can be characterized. Actually, let me see. I, I have uh, I'm here in front of my laptop and I had a, a quote that I was going to bring up here. So let me just read this. Um, in 1958, Israel described two clinical forms of overtraining, the sympathetic form and the parasympathetic form. The sympathetic form, or Bastalian form, is characterized by increased sympathetic tone in the resting state, whereas in parasympathetic or adesinoid form, the parasympathetic tone dominates in the resting state as well as during exercise. The sympathetic form is most often observed in team sports and sprint events, whereas parasympathetic form is preferentially observed in endurance athletes. Okay, and so what that tells us is, is Overtraining essentially in endurance athletes can be characterized by increased parasympathetic activity at rest. And this has been documented using heart rate variability in a number of studies. But there's also been studies in endurance athletes that showed, you know, fatigue is also characterized by reduced HRV. So now it's, you're looking at changes in HRV. They could be increasing or decreasing. And that could be good or bad depending on the context of the training. So, so if, if training loads are increasing, and HRV is responding in such a way, it could just cause a lot of confusion and you're gonna require a lot more context to interpret that response. Whereas with with strength and power athletes and team sport athletes, it's, it's highly unlikely. And I say that simply because of all the, the monitoring of HRV I've done in, in various teams of various levels, I've really never seen what's considered parasympathetic hyperactivity where HRV increases with fatigue. In fact, it's almost always under fatigue or, or poor adaptation. It's always the opposite where, where HRV decreases, indicating less parasympathetic activity at rest. Um, so, so working with team sport athletes is a little bit more clear cut. HRV increasing is usually a good thing, could be reflective of reduced training load during, during uh, tapering. It could be reflective of increases in fitness. It's, it's generally and usually a positive thing. And, and I've actually looked at um, in, in some elite level rugby players, looking at it in football players and swimmers, where I'm just looking at relationships between their, their psychometrics, so how well they're rating their sleep quality, their soreness, fatigue, and so forth, and how that's relating with their heart rate variability. And so I could, I could simply just take all their HRV scores and through median split, basically have over here all their high scores and then over here all their low scores. And then I just see what are, what are they typically rating their, um, their wellness on, on when their high, HRV is high or low. And, and almost always um, we're seeing that when HRV is higher in these team sport athletes and strength and power athletes, their wellness markers tend to be better. Whereas when their HRV is lower than usual, their wellness scores tend to be lower than usual. Now, the relationships are never going to be perfect, but but taking a step back and looking at the, you know the bigger picture, I'm I'm quite confident in saying that in team sport athletes and strength and power athletes, you know HRV being at baseline or even slightly above is usually a good thing, whereas when it is below baseline, it, it is usually a bad thing. Now, there's always context. I mean, detraining if if you're reducing your physical activity levels, you've taken a couple weeks off, you know exercise has a stimulatory effect on parasympathetic activity and therefore HRV. So simply reducing training too much can cause reductions in HRV. Doesn't mean you're overtraining, obviously. Doesn't mean you're fatigued. Um, it, it's just a reflection of your activity level. So there's always context, but in general, um, you know, I hope I hope that answered the original question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, <clears throat> so I guess my next question would be if if you've got a, a team sport athlete whose HRV is low, what are kind of the the intervention options? I assume obviously reduced training load or intensity of training, but is there anything that can, um, any recovery modalities that, that can improve HRV? 
Okay, so um, I, I guess I want to say first, um, you know, both looking at this from a from a research perspective, but also practically from a coach's perspective, um, I I am not a huge proponent of using HRV to guide training in the team setting when you're being hyper reactive to a, a, a single isolated score. So um, for a couple of reasons, because um, HRV, first of all, is not the most reliable metric. It's, it's constantly, your autonomic nervous system is constantly responding to physiological and perceived psychological stimuli. So one low score on a given day, I'm not going to be overly concerned about because one, the athlete's not going to die. And if, and, and I mean, it's just a low HRV score, let's be honest. Okay. And suppose it is reflective of fatigue. Um, I'm pretty concerned if an athlete can't handle a training session when they're a little bit fatigued, you know what I mean? Um, rather what I'm more interested in or, or what would cause a little bit more concern for me, uh, is, you know, are the scores low over several days in a row? Then I'm going to, investigate a little bit deeper. I'm going to, you know, have a little bit more of a conversation. I'm going to look at the training load values, compare them to other individuals of the same position. You know, are they doing more than normal, more than others? Um, are they not sleeping well? What, what is the issue? And then, and then, you know, the, the appropriate intervention may be reduced training loads. It, it could be something as simple as, you know, they're going to sit out of conditioning after practice just to reduce those loads. Um, so, so, I, there are different modalities that can increase acutely parasympathetic activity um, that that I think can be useful, but but there really needs to be more research on it. So so I guess the, the next few things I'll suggest or talk about um, is is a little bit supported by research, but it also might be a little bit speculation. Um, I guess we'll start with an example. So working with football players, we've observed that the smaller, more fit individuals tend to recover really well between training sessions, right? And, and, and in, in football, the skilled position, the receivers and de defensive backs would be uh, comparable to the wingers and backs in rugby. But we also have the uh, mid-skill position, which are larger players. So, so uh, I'll give you some uh, body masses to, to qualify this. So our, our skilled players, receivers and DBs, may be around 80 kilos. Okay. Our mid-skill players, our running backs, linebackers, and tight ends are going to be around 100 to 110 kilos, give or take. And then our linemen, our really big fellows, can be over 130 kilos, right? And what's interesting about this is, is you have this team of, of athletes who vary substantially in body mass, body composition, strength levels, and, of course, fitness. Yet, they're all going to be expected to to follow the same training schedule, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's conditioning or whether it's daily practice. Right. Um, and, and so naturally, you know, there's this hypothesis, well, you know, these big linemen who are carrying all this excess body mass, um, who have lower relative aerobic fitness compared to the other players and so forth, you know, they may not be recovering as well as, as some of these other positions. And sure enough, that's what we found. You know, when when training on consecutive days, the big fellas, they don't recover, at least in terms of their HRV, nearly as well as the smaller, more aerobically fit individuals. So that that poses two questions, at least in, in my mind and maybe more more in others. But one is, can we be proactive if we know that that they're not recovering as well on consecutive day sessions? You know, can we be proactive in really targeting aerobic fitness? 
um, and really trying to increase the work capacity in these players so that it, they can recover a little bit better between sessions. Um, and, and I know a lot of uh, traditional-minded football pl- coaches and, and strength and conditioning coaches might might not like that response because because linemen are require um, a lot of strength and power. They're not covering a, a tremendous amount of distance. So the interference effect from doing too much aerobic work with strength and power work, you know, could potentially affect their performance. But but I I do believe that that there are ways to increase aerobic fitness. Um, strategically that while you can still maintain strength and power and then the other question is can we do something um reactively where we can try and increase and and stimulate recovery between sessions so so that you know they may be back at baseline by the next session and what the research shows is um you know cold water immersion um, I, I'm going to throw that out there, and I know that's that's even controversial right now because of it can blunt inflammation and therefore maybe negating some of these chronic adaptations to strength and power. Um, but cold water immersion as a tool to simply facilitate um, reductions in body temperature after after training, and 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 so I could even say we don't the water doesn't need to be that cold. We don't need to, you know, um, be sitting in ice necessarily. We just want to reduce body temperature. Um, because I mean, these these players are are, are wearing um, protective equipment that is going to you know f- f- increase heat gain, uh, increase fluid loss, and then plus the fact that some of these guys are over 130 kilos, um, we need to get body temperature back down. We need to increase hydration um, in the post exercise period. Uh, we need to facilitate recovery. So, um, cold water immersion, obviously, sleep quality. Um, there's some newer evidence that's suggesting that things like foam rolling may stimulate, um, parasympathetic activity. I don't know how persistent that effect might be. Is it just acute? Um, same with things like biofeedback where we're doing paced breathing, diaphragmatic breathing that that'll transiently increase heart rate variability, how long of an effect that has and, and on, on recovery, we're not sure yet. Um, there's one study I'll mention by, uh, Hani Al-Haddad who I believe is, is uh, a sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach out of uh, Aspire Academy. He did an interesting, interesting study with swimmers where after the last training session of every, of every day, they did some cold water immersion. And uh, that stimulated heart rate variability or increased heart rate variability after cold water immersion, but it also increased heart rate variability the next morning. So during an intensified training week, when they did cold water immersion after the last session of every day, their HRV was preserved better throughout the intensified training compared to a control week where they didn't do the cold water immersion. HRV was not nearly as well preserved. And, and this is measured the next morning. So, so it appears that, that uh, cold water immersion might have a persisting effect. But, it, but I also wonder, is it maybe they're just sleeping better um, it, it, because they looked at sleep quality and that was improved as well. So there's clearly some type of synergy taking place with the cold water immersion, facilitating relaxation, maybe sleeping better, and overall preventing these these reductions in HRV that might otherwise be taking place. Yeah, some some great sort of tips there and advice on on what people can do. Um, and I so I guess looking at some of our listeners and subscribers uh, who might want to get more into hrv are there any kind of i know there's a few apps out there uh, where they can monitor their own are there any that you would recommend yeah it, it it seems like every day there's there's a new app on the market that that can measure hrv coming from 
One's using a heart rate strap, some use a finger sensor, some use just the camera phone, some are using wrist-based tools. Um, and, and here's the deal. There's probably not one single product I could recommend that's going to meet um, what everyone needs from the app. So it probably depends on your situation. So rather than, than suggesting a few apps, what I might do is just offer what you might want to consider. Um, so, for example, if you're working in a team setting, you're probably going to want to choose an app that offers a team interface. And that is when HRV is recorded every day with a tool, where is that data going? Is it being uploaded to some type of interface where you can view it um, almost instantly and therefore start making adjustments to training or whatever it is you want to do? Um, you know, back when I my first training study with HRV was was back in 2013, and there really wasn't a team interface associated with any of the apps. So I had the athletes literally exporting their daily HRV score to me via email every day, which, you know, after a week or two gets pretty old. Um, but now a lot of these apps have these team interfaces that really shorten the amount of time it takes to, to view and interpret the data. In fact, uh, an app that visualizes the data very well can pretty much negate any need for you to go into Excel or some other statistical package and, and crunch numbers if it's when it's visualized really well. Um, cost, some are, are more expensive than others. Obviously, your budget's going to matter. Um, device compatibility. Um, if you're having athletes on your team download an app, um, you have to make sure that the app is compatible with iOS as well as with Android. Um, some may or may not be compatible with both. Um, one one thing that I think is extremely important from in, in a athletics uh, realm is the duration of the measure. Um, this is something that that every coach is going to struggle with is 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 maintaining compliance from athletes to perform HRV measures every day. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of the research that that I've been working on with with my colleagues, in particular my uh, my good friend and my former or my PhD advisor when I was working on my PhD, Mike Esco, we've really been investigating what is the shortest measurement that we could get away with. Um, that can still be meaningful in reflecting adaptation and responses to training. And what we found is, you know, HRV, or at least RMSSD, the value that we're looking at, can be measured in about 60 seconds. Um, so if I'm looking for an app to use daily with athletes, I'm going to want to find an app that's using a short measurement duration. And I'm not saying that, that using a longer duration isn't a good thing um, or you shouldn't use it. I mean, you know, two, three-minute measure is absolutely fine. I just get worried about the athletes being able to comply with those measures every day when when they have to sit there for longer. So any anything we could do to simplify the process and make it more convenient for the athlete, I'm on board with. And because we've used 60 second measures and and other groups are using 60 second measures and it's and it's showing relationships with fitness, it's responding to intensified training. Um, we're pretty confident with the 60 second measures being being appropriate. Um, what is the HRV parameter that the app is using? There's, there's numerous HRV parameters that exist, but a lot of the research um, is showing that, you know, a, one single marker of HRV that reflects parasympathetic activity is probably uh, sufficient. I know some people are probably going to disagree with that, but again, it comes down to simplicity, convenience, um, facilitating rapid interpretation. So, um so we like to use RMSSD and, and, and Martin Boucher's group and, and Dan Plews and Paul Lorson and Jamie Stanley. They really 
kind of showed that ARM SSD alone can be pretty useful or, or taken with resting heart rate. Um, and then what other training metrics can the app provide? So um, HRV used in isolation isn't going to tell you much if you don't have context to put it in. So um, how are they rating their perceived levels of stress, fatigue, sleep? So is there a wellness questionnaire associated with the app? Um, does it allow you to input training load or can it track training load? If you don't have some other uh, method of doing so, if, if you, the, the less places you or less tools you need your athletes to use to put input information or, or for you to input information becomes more convenient. Um, and then you do want to consider something like what, how is the app acquiring HRV? Do the, do the athletes need to put on a heart rate strap? The heart rate strap in the field is probably the most accurate way to measure heart rate variability. The problem is, man, so, some athletes just hate putting on the heart, heart rate strap every day. It's just one extra step. They need to moisten it before they put it on. It doesn't sound like much, but when you're asking them to do this near daily, it matters. So now there's, you know, you have the option of using a, a finger sensor or even the camera phone, and, and both tools have been shown to, to agree pretty well with the ECG. Um, so what app are you using and how is it measuring HRV? Is it something your athletes are going to be using on, on a regular basis? And then finally, probably one of the most important, you know, next to, you know, is the, is the device accurate and, and so forth? Is it using a 60-second measure for convenience? Is it using ARM SSD? Because that's, you know, what a lot of the research is showing we should be using. Then what I'm looking for is how well does the app visualize the data? over time so that I could see how their scores and how their HRV trend has been evolving over time. Because just like I said before, just looking at the trend, especially if you, you can see the training load and the wellness scores along with that trend, you don't need to do any number crunching in Excel. You, if you know what you're looking for on the trend, you can rapidly interpret the data uh, right on the spot there. Yeah, brilliant. So assuming our, our rugby player uh, buys one of these apps and starts using what what's the best way to begin, because as, as you said, you can't just go off one uh, one data set. You've got sure. to build a bit of um, you know yep. history in there. So how how would you go about that? Yeah, um, look, I, I'll probably get a lot of flack for saying this, um, but I'm a strong proponent of performing your own observational research on yourself or on your players. I, I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of people criticizing coaches or sports scientists that are, are using a tool and collecting data and not taking action with it or not using it necessarily, at least immediately to drive decision making and adjustments and training load. And, and, and I guess, you know, without an observational period, how do you know that the decisions you're making with the tool are, are having meaningful effects or, or, or that you did something right? Um, and so a lot of the research I've done in the field has been observational, uh, particularly because the coaches are more open to it. You know, you tell them, you know, we have this tool that can, you know, measure uh, adaptation to training and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, we can do it. We don't need to affect training, you know, this, that and the other. So so they become more open to letting to letting you use it. But then during that observation period, you could start showing them, look, you know, here are the fitness changes, and we could actually identify, based on these heart rate variability scores, the ones we, we kind of could have predicted halfway through this five-week training program, who was responding well and who wasn't, right? And so you now validate the tool in its application in terms of what it's reflecting, and, and you're also starting to, to determine what are the typical or expected responses to the training, and therefore, in the future, when you see these responses, how can you react better to it? So... I mean, it wasn't until six for me, 
personally using HRV. Um, it took about six months where I just collected, measured my HRV every morning and did my training and and marked my wellness and, and any other kind of lifestyle things that were taking place. And, and then retrospectively, I looked back on the data and I was starting to see, wow, when I, you know, being a, a power lifter, I wasn't doing a lot of conditioning at the time. But when I started doing some conditioning, my HRV scores were dropping like crazy. But after two or three weeks of the conditioning program, I was noticing I was seeing much less fluctuation in my trend you know and then when i would travel you know my sleep quality would deteriorate my hrv scores this that and the other so you just start to get a feel for how your body responds what your normal trends look like and, and therefore after that observation period you know it doesn't have to be six months you know you could look at it for a month or so and, and just see how your body responds to the day-to-day -day activities to training that way in the in the future, you can now use it much more strategic, strategically to alter training or, or recovery modalities when you're starting to see trends that you know may be reflective of um, uh, heightened fatigue or, or poor adaptation or so forth. Yeah, that's that's great, and I, th I think you've highlighted there. You, you can use it as an educational tool with the with your athletes as well. You know, it's it's all well and good say you know trying to educate players about the importance of sleep and things like that, but when you've actually got you know a measure showing where you know that the HRV has been affected and they highlighted sleep being an issue. It just reinforces everything you're doing. And, and, and also a big message I think you, you've been sort of highlighting all the way through is that you can't just take one metric if, if you're doing wellness um, and other markers of fatigue. Um, you can't take one on its own. You've got to use the whole picture to kind of figure out uh, what's going on. Um, so, yeah, some great points there. Uh, last two questions, Andrew, and these are, these are ones that we we ask all the guests on the podcast. And the first one, and you can put a bit of a HRV spin on it if you want, but it's uh, what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? So, I think I think the biggest mistake athletes make, um, and, and again, putting the HRV spin on it, is not addressing or building up a, a sufficient work capacity, um, especially in terms of aerobic fitness. Um, I, you know, being heavily into the strength and conditioning scene, we kind of went through a phase recently where we, we were looking down on aerobic work and, and really only wanting to do high intensity interval training. Um, we're really scared of the interference effect. And, and I think it's done a disservice. And, and the reason why I say that is because in, in all these teams that I've worked with and looking at HRV and, and, and how they're responding and adapting to training, the ones who respond and adapt the best tend to be the ones who are the most aerobically fit. They handle the changes in training load really well. They are the ones less likely to get sick. They are the ones that handle lifestyle issues a lot better. Um, so if, if I could make any recommendation to any team sport athlete, it, it would be please place a high emphasis and priority on, on developing your, your work capacity. I'm not saying you need to go run for hours and hours and hours. There's, there's several different ways you could develop work capacity and aerobic fitness. But I think that really should be a top priority among whether it's rugby players, football, American football players and so forth, um, just based on what I've been seeing over the years here. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Uh, and the the other question we we always ask, um, give a bit of information for all the SC coaches listening. Is what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach? Oh man, read um, and not just read. I, I you're going to learn a ton from books. So I, so I think it's important to read. It's important to um, attend conferences. 
um, to meet other strength and conditioning coaches. I think it's important to visit other facilities when you can observe, ask questions, um, understand that someone else's program on paper might not make a lot of sense to you, but you don't understand the context or the constraints that they have. Um, and, and, and I guess read up, you know, strength and conditioning coaches, I think we tend to pigeonhole ourselves into just the strength side of things. So we want to read all about how we can get big and strong and, and realistically getting an athlete big and strong really actually isn't that hard if you know the principles. Um, so I think we need to, uh, strength and, condition, and conditioning coaches need to pay a little bit more attention to, to the conditioning side of things and bioenergetics and, and you know, talk to a cross-country coach or, or an endurance coach. Talk to, to someone who, who will offer a little bit more perspective um, because, you know, as our name implies, it's not just the strength that we're responsible for. Um, the conditioning is extremely important and, and that's kind of um, supports what I was saying before about the, the advice I would give to, to, to players is work capacity and conditioning is so important to to just your ability to tolerate training and, and all the lifestyle stresses that come at you. Um, so, so I guess that would be my thoughts on that. Yeah, cool. Some great advice there. And, and lastly, Andrew, uh, where can people learn more about you and the work you're doing? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think my name's, I'm not even sure, at Andrew underscore flat, I believe. Uh, and then I have a blog, um, which is first where I, I started detailing and, and describing my experiences with HRV and reviewing some of the research. Um, lately, it's more somewhere that I just post all of our recent studies. So uh, if you're interested at all in, in the HRV research uh, in team sports and, and so forth, uh, the blog hrvtraining.com would be a good place to go. And, and my contact information is on there as well if you just uh, look for the contact page that I've got an email there and and so forth so so I encourage anyone if you have a question or, or you're interested in learning more or anything like that I'm I'm here I'm free to help or I'm I'm here to help if uh, if that's something you're interested in awesome brilliant yeah and of course we will share links to those uh, on the show notes uh, but Andrew thanks very much um, for sharing your time with us and uh, your insights into HRV and, and training uh, I'm sure our listeners will get a huge amount out of that and uh, and hopefully they'll be they'll be monitoring their HRV in the future it was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so thanks again, Andrew. Uh, great podcast, loads of good information. and Nice to do something a bit different and go into really in-depth into a topic and HRV. Obviously, um, more research to come, but loads of loads of good benefits from using it. Another another tool in the S&C toolbox. Uh, so as I said at the start, any question on this, um, you know, I'm sure Andrew will be able to ask them. So you either contact him through the his uh, contact details on the show notes or get in touch with us and maybe do it in, a, in another, another podcast with Andrew. Uh, and I know he's currently soon to be publishing some stuff on, on rugby, um, specifically rugby and HRV. So uh, we look forward to, to hearing about that. Uh, in the meantime, guys, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn or iTunes uh, and give us a five-star review. And uh, keep checking us out at the website if you want a rugby strength and conditioning program uh, where everything's taken care of, your prehab, injury prehab, rehab, and, of course, your strength, power, speed, agility, fitness. Uh, check out our subscription program and keep checking us out on social media. Loads more podcasts to come, so stay tuned. Till next time.
Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.